You're listening to Mining the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 14, Alcohol and the Developing Brain. So Kim, today we're going to talk about alcohol. Is alcohol good for us? Well, uh, that really does depend on who you're asking. Uh, Absolutely, there's a lot of debate as to whether alcohol is um, really bad for us or if alcohol actually has some health benefits, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. In fact, we're going to talk about uh, more the effects of prenatal alcohol exposure or what happens to the developing brain of a fetus or baby when a mother consumes alcohol during pregnancy. So I'm guessing that it's not good for the fetus to have alcohol before Correct. birth. Okay. Yes, you would be right. And because alcohol is in fact a teratogen. Uh, teratogen is a fancy word that means it causes birth defects. Uh, the word teratogen is taken from the Greek uh, word terata, which is monster, and gen or genesis means birth of. So any substance that is consumed mm. during pregnancy that is teratogenic has the possibility or likelihood of creating birth defects. So one of the common ones that people might be familiar with is uh, in the 1960s, uh, mothers who were pregnant Uh, were prescribed thalidomide for nausea induced by pregnancy. And what they didn't realize uh, was that it was not um, safe to consume because it it caused a series of birth defects uh, known as phocomelia. So alcohol is teratogenic. It's one of the only drugs uh, that is an addictive substance that produces uh, birth defects. And um, certainly now we know that uh, mothers who do consume alcohol during pregnancy, it causes um, a series of birth defects that really people didn't believe for a number of years. They they were resistant to the notion that alcohol was in fact teratogenic. People thought um, that some of the, the differences amongst these babies was due to poor nutrition amongst mothers. Uh, in fact, in 1973, a, pub- a paper was published in The Lancet, which is a very high uh, prestigious journal in medicine. That was a case study of about eight kids that were born to mothers who drank during pregnancy. And the authors described uh, a similar pattern of, of um, def- defects in these babies. So, for example, uh, very specific heart abnormalities and facial dysmorphology. And dysmorphology is a fancy word meaning uh, the the facial features are unusual or different. Uh, and again, nobody really believed that this was actually due to alcohol until in, uh, in 1981, Kathy Sulik and her colleagues published a paper in Science uh, where she had exposed uh, developing mice pups, uh, mouse fetuses to alcohol during pregnancy and found a similar pattern of craniofacial dysmorphologies as well as heart defects and limb defects. And uh, so in 1981, we finally realized Uh, or it was accepted that alcohol did indeed cause birth defects. So you said it's the only addictive substance. So things like heroin and cocaine and stuff, they don't don't cause birth defects? Correct. They don't cause directly uh, birth defects that are anatomical. They may well have subtle effects on the developing central nervous system, but other than a baby being born to a mother that is regularly consuming these these substances, the baby would be born dependent and would experience withdrawal. But uh, other than that, you wouldn't notice any differences with these babies, no. Okay, so it's not a good idea to keep snorting coke while you're pregnant. 
No. Uh, <laughs> all, all, certainly all addictive substances uh, consumed during pregnancy will have effects on the developing fetus. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, back to alcohol. So how does alcohol act like a teratogen? Well, it's interesting because nobody really knows for sure the mechanism. There are three proposed or likely uh, effects, uh, all of which are probably occurring to some extent. Uh, So number one, alcohol directly does cross the placental barrier. Now the placenta is the main interface between the mother and the the developing baby. Uh, Anything that the mother consumes or any, any, anything that's occurring with the mother, uh, changes in oxygen or glucose levels, this is uh, um, transferred from the maternal bloodstream to the fetal bloodstream via the placenta. And the placenta, while we do call it a a barrier, is not a great barrier. It's in fact rather permeable. So alcohol will directly cross the placental barrier and therefore essentially if you're drunk, also the baby is drunk, right? Because the alcohol is getting into the the fetal bloodstream. So that's one, one impact. Uh, it also, alcohol, uh, when consumed, raises blood levels of cortisol in the drinking individual, right? So cortisol is that main stress hormone that I talked about in the first episode on stress. And so when maternal cortisol levels go up, cortisol will also, high levels of cortisol, will again cross the placenta and have impacts on the developing baby. So it's as if uh, uh, the mother is, is stressed, and certainly there's a whole other um, a body of literature looking at just maternal stress and the effects on the developing baby, and, and that also has an impact. And finally, the third likely uh, effect of alcohol is that when alcohol is consumed, it, it because it is consumed orally and it and it goes into the digestive tract. What we know about alcohol is that it, it affects the absorption, normal absorption of vitamins and minerals. So if you're consuming alcohol and also consuming food substances, uh, some of which contain essential amino acids that are necessary for growth and development, alcohol will interfere with that. So. Mm-hmm. What you're also having is is malabsorption of nutrients and vitamins that are necessary for the support of the developing fetus. Okay, so you mentioned a couple effects on the uh, the babies that are born. If you could like summarize or list them, what are the effects of uh, alcohol exposure to a prenatal fetus? Right, so what we do know is that uh, a baby that is born to a mother consuming alcohol during pregnancy, it will result in fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. So fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, or FASD, is an umbrella term to define all the range of, of, of impacts to the developing baby when alcohol is consumed. Most people might be familiar with fetal alcohol syndrome, or FAS, uh, which is not actually used as a diagnostic term in Canada anymore, but for the purposes of uh, clarity, FAS, uh, or fetal alcohol syndrome, it is characterized by three major things. Number one, those facial dysmorphologies that I was talking about before. So uh, that sometimes people will talk about the FAS face. Uh, mm-hmm. So one of the, the distinctive features is if you if you feel your lip right now, everybody put your little finger up right above your lip. You feel a little dip there, a little dip. That's called a philtrum, P-H-I-L-T-R-U-M, a philtrum. And uh, in babies born to mothers consuming alcohol during pregnancy, FAS, will result in a flattened filtrum. So that little dip is almost absent. So that's one of the the key features. There's also alterations in um, the amount of space between the eyes and the ears. There's a loss of epicanthal folds. uh, So that fold right above your eyelid. Uh, The ears are relatively small. 
Overall, it resembles almost like a more flattened facial uh, features. Uh, mm. Now, this has become under great scrutiny because these diagnostic features uh, that were developed in the 80s were really for Caucasian faces, right? So we now recognize that this is not an inclusive diagnosis, that we need to be recognizing how um, prenatal alcohol exposure affects face development uh, across other many different ethnic groups. So that's number one, facial dysmorphologies. The second major impact uh, that we see is a pattern of growth defects. So uh, overall, babies are small relative to gestational age. Uh, they're born a lot lighter, they're, they're shorter. Uh, they eventually do catch up uh, in terms of uh, relative to their peers, but initially you do see these um, shortened stature and, and uh, smaller birth weights or lower birth weights. And the final key uh, um, feature of FAS is um, CNS, or central nervous system abnormalities. And this is a broad, broad, broad term. But essentially, this is the one that is really has, has a, a great impact because uh, there are so many um, alterations that could happen when, with the, the impact to the central nervous system. So it sounds like the fetus's brain and nervous system is really sensitive. Yes, so the, and the nervous system is very sensitive to the teratogenic effects of alcohol. And the main reason for that is because the brain or the nervous system starts to develop three weeks post-conception three weeks. And that continues right up, not only till birth, but the brain still continues to develop well after uh, birth, right? So we have the massive brain growth spurt right around um, uh, uh, parturition or birth, and the brain does continue to develop. But you can imagine why this would be an issue. When do most women find out that they're pregnant? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. So most women don't realize that they're pregnant until around five weeks, right? Because after they've missed their first period, uh, and oh, so of depending, course, of course, uh, yeah, right. and depending on when uh, the the length of a, of a, a woman's cycle, she may not find out until six weeks, for example. Mm. So you've got that sensitive period of development, and uh, women may well be drinking. Uh, right up until, you know, they take that, that first pregnancy test, right? So uh, the fact that the nervous system is developing well, you know, right from uh, embryonic to fetal stages of development means that it is very sensitive to uh, teratogens. And there are a number of brain systems that seem to be particularly impacted. Uh, so I just want to put out a massive shout out now to my uh, uh, one of my postdoctoral mentors, Dr. Joanne Weinberg, who is a scientist at the University of British Columbia. And Joanne uh, has spent her research career really exploring the effects of prenatal alcohol exposure on the developing brain. And one of the uh, major findings from her research group is that this, the nervous system that seems to be, or the circuit that's most impacted by prenatal alcohol exposure is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, or HPA axis, which if you would like a reminder, go back to episode one on stress. The HPA axis is the main neural system that's activated by stress. And so what we see with prenatal alcohol exposure is that it makes the, uh, the, the baby, and this continues into infancy and adulthood, more sensitive to stressors. So, you know, after the baby's born, they drink the mother's milk. Does, does drinking alcohol make the, the baby drunk through the milk? 
Absolutely, that's right. So if you are breastfeeding or nursing po- um, uh, a baby, uh, particularly during the, the you know the, the recommended uh, time for exclusive breastfeeding is the first six months after the baby is born, uh, and if you are consuming alcohol during that time, uh, the baby is actually it's getting your out al- your the alcohol and it, it it's absolutely uh, affecting the baby's development. Um, so I should mention now, uh, you know, uh, the you know how much alcohol will cause these effects, right? And you know, if I have one drink, will will this right. cause FAS? Um, well, you know, the challenge with that is that it's so difficult to give any definitive amount because there are all these other factors that could impact the absorption of alcohol in the developing baby. So first of all, mother's nutritional status. So when she's pregnant and postpartum, when she's nursing, how much is she eating? What is she eating, right? Uh, Alcohol is absorbed much quicker when the mother has no food in her stomach. So, uh, you know, again, one drink on an empty stomach is gonna have, uh, is going to impact blood alcohol concentration much greater than on a, on a full stomach. Also genetics, right? So there are certain genes that impact the absorption, uh, sorry, the, the, the metabolism of alcohol. So depending on your, your gen- genetic um, profile, again, alcohol could have a, more, a greater or less effect on the developing baby. So all that is to say, you know, the party line is there's no safe amount. Uh, Mothers should not be consuming alcohol Mm. during pregnancy and during breastfeeding. Uh, There's the expression pump and dump. So if you do want to go out and have a drink uh, and you are breastfeeding, you consume the alcohol uh, and then uh, you can pump the breast milk and throw it away, uh, supplement with formula or previously used breast milk. So um, yeah, so these are, are, you know, important considerations. that individuals should be mindful of. Yeah, um, I had a friend in grad school who was so tiny that she joked that she was drunk all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, because you're <laughs> because it's so light that. Yep, because your body weight uh, and whether right. you're male or female impacts the amount of alcohol in your blood. Because women have more fat relative to muscle in males, which means that more alcohol is kept in our bloodstream, whereas in males it's right. it's more dilute, for right. lack of a better term. And I shouldn't have to say it, but our listeners should know that a tumbler of tequila does not count as one drink. Okay. <laughs> so what, what, else, uh, what else is affected? Uh, what other parts of the brain and nervous right. system and everything else are yeah, affected? Yeah, so, you know, another, another sensitive region of the brain is, is the developing limbic system. So the parts of the brain that are implicated in motivation and emotion, so regulation of mood uh, and anxiety, for example. Uh, and then also one of the most sensitive brain regions is the, is the frontal lobe. So the frontal lobe is the most anterior front part of your brain. It's the most recently developed part of the brain, both in humans as a species and in, and in humans as individuals. And the frontal lobe is responsible for a variety of things, but primarily it's your executive control, right? So it's the part of the brain that really inhibits a lot of other lower brain regions. Uh, it's like your the equivalent of your CEO of your nervous system. And so this is why... Um, babies, children, even adults with FASD, uh, one of the behavioral outcomes of prenatal alcohol exposure 
or confirmed prenatal alcohol exposure among FASD individuals is they have a really hard time making decisions and they act very impulsively. Uh, this can come out as a diagnosis of ADHD, so attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is often a concurrent disorder with uh, FASD. Um, but they, they tend to make bad decisions because they, can't, they lack the ability to um, see the consequences of those decisions, right? So they, you know, they may, a child, this is very frustrating, right? A child might be told, don't do that, it will, it's going to result in this, or don't hit that, that, that other child. Uh, and they continue to do so. And it's, and it can be very frustrating to a caregiver mm. uh, to s observe this because they feel like, well, we told you this was going to happen, or we told you that not to do this. But it's important to recognize that these individuals have an acquired brain injury. They literally lack the hardware to be able to assess the consequences of their behaviors. And you did your postdoc work on FASD, didn't you? That's right. So I worked with Dr. Joanne Weinberg for about two and a half years. We used an animal model to study FASD. What does animal model mean? So in um, basic research or preclinical research, we tend to use animal models uh, to explore human disease or human uh, function. So an animal model is something where, okay, if we want to study um, depression, for example, uh, and we want to explore some of the underlying brain mechanisms of depression, uh, we can use uh, an animal to explore some of these questions. So an animal model is just literally modeling depression in, in the human uh, condition. So an animal model of uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders would literally be uh, exposing a, uh, a pregnant dam, which is the fancy word for a female rat, a pregnant dam to alcohol during pregnancy. And so uh, using these models, this allows us to have, to answer some questions about causality because the ethics of uh, ex randomly exposing human females to alcohol during pregnancy, you can imagine unethical, right? So we can't yeah. say, you guys drink, you guys don't, let's see what the, the effects are. So, you know, these, these things are not taken lightly. And uh, we do, when we use animals in research, they are very much governed by animal ethics. So that we have a university ethics board and a, uh, a national ethics organization to oversee animal research. Uh, so bearing in mind that, you know, these, these studies are ethically um, granted, what we do is we essentially provide uh, a milkshake to uh, a pregnant dam that this milkshake contains all the essential amino acids necessary to maintain pregnancy in an, an a rat. And in addition to that, we add in a little bit of ethanol. And so the animal's uh, pregnancy in a, in a rat is around 21 days, and so or three weeks. And uh, we provide that uh, amount throughout the pregnancy. And this this is a it's not a binge model of drinking. Uh, it's more of a, of a daily drinking model uh, that produces a more subtle outcome uh, along the FASD spectrum. But the rat pups or little bit rat babies that are born to these animals do show some of the similar effects that we see in, in human FASD. So we use this model. And what I was exploring, uh, because my research has always been, uh, my interests have been, always been in looking at vulnerability to addiction and other mental health disorders, was what I was wondering is we know in humans that one of the outcomes, and this is uh, Anne Streithskoos' work, she's a, 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 um, a wonderful research scientist that has explored this in humans, what she's found is that 
Uh, in humans with FASD, they also are highly, highly susceptible to mental health disorders such as depression, anxiety, and substance use disorders. So what I was wanting to ask in my research is, how do we, uh, is this true? Do we actually see this as a result of prenatal alcohol exposure? And so I essentially uh, modeled this in, in animals. And once the rat pups were born, uh, and then I waited until around uh, peri-adolescence, around just after they reached uh, puberty, uh, I exposed them to uh, chronic mild stress, which we know um, is a potent um, factor in, in mediating some depression, anxiety, and other mental health disorders. And I tested them on animal models of depression, anxiety. And sure enough, we do see uh, that these animals are more, show more of these depressive and anxiety-like behaviors. And importantly, and this is a hu huge um, piece of Joanne's work, Dr. Weinberg, is that there are sex differences. So for many years um, in basic science, we tended to use male rats, and we studied male mice, male rats, uh, not thinking or not not, well, thinking, but not really being wanting to study females. So Joanne has made it a very explicit part of her research program to explore not only the male uh, pups born to drinking dams, but also the female pups. And we see that the, the effects of prenatal alcohol exposure are sexually dimorphic. So what that means is that you see a range of, of differences in males that are unique, and in females we have a different profile. Just out of curiosity, why why are rats used so much as animal models as opposed to another animal? A uh, number a number of reasons. Number one, uh, if you know anything about rats, uh, what you should know is that humans only just edged out rats in terms of being the most populous species on the planet. Rats will they uh, mate and have very quick pregnancies. They have, an, uh, it's three week gestation. They have litters that are about 10 to 15 pups. Uh, so they're constantly reproducing. So we so kind of capitalize. So that makes it easy to study, yeah. Right, right. And then the second uh, major reason is they're mammalian species. So uh, uh, in terms of comparative physiology and anatomy, they do very much resemble uh, certainly human behavior and human brain. Uh, so the, their social structures are similar to humans, so they have a social hierarchy. Um, play behavior is important in adolescence, much like humans. So they do, uh, it's, it's a it's a fairly good model of, of human behavior and brain function and, and physiology in general. It's not perfect. Uh, certainly, the brain growth spurt in uh, rat pups is not aligned with the brain growth spurt mm. in humans. So, you know, it's it's an imperfect. Well, you got to balance that. You got to balance the practicalities with the similarity of humans, right? Right, and and then the next model up would be a, a, a monkeys, right, or primates, and those are costly. The, they don't reproduce as quickly, and there are more ethics around yeah. primates because they, again, we're, we're getting into territory where um, uh, the stress of living in a lab environment is very is much more. A rat older. can take it better. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, we, so do rats also have like a frontal area that inhibits like an, their own animal impulses? Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. That's so yeah. cool to think of a rat like, oh, putting yeah. the brakes on violence yeah. because it's like thinks better of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And and animals that, uh, in my PhD, I actually looked at this, animals that are raised in isolation, which is considered highly stressful, particularly for rats like humans that, mm. that like social uh, stimulation, they are more aggressive. Uh, and it, it is related to, you know, the, the circuit of the, the frontal lobe. You still work with rats? I do not. Uh, I developed a horrible rat allergy when I was in my, my, my last years of my PhD. Uh, it's so it. unfair. I know. They, they rallied against me. Wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> well, to understand more about FASD in terms of diagnosis, treatment, and prevention, here's Audrey McFarlane, the executive director of the CAN FASD Network. Great. So, uh, Audrey, welcome to Minding the Brain. Uh, we're thrilled to have you here in our studio in Ottawa. And uh, what I'd like to ask you is start out and tell me a little bit, how is FASD diagnosed? And if there are any biomarkers or things that um, can predict or confirm a diagnosis of FASD. Can you let us know about that? Right, so um, unfortunately we don't have a, a nice uh, one single test or a blood test or something that we can do. It is a bit of a cumbersome process at the at this time, but the good news is is that we are building better capacity across the country. Almost every province now has some ability to do diagnosis. Um, but it starts off with um, usually psychological assessments. Uh, there's 10 brain domains that that we assess. So um, unless a baby has microcephaly or some uh, brain size issue, um, we really can't start diagnosing children until they're older. And um, often we don't, we are, um, we have less tools to diagnose the brain uh, before the age of six. So preschool children, it could be a lot of different things, environmental, attentional issues, um, all kinds of things. So usually by the time children get into school, that's a time when we can start to differentiate between environment and brain function uh, conditions. Um, so we have 10 brain domains that we assess. There's also um, uh, certain facial features that we look for as well. However, that's about one in six that have the facial features, so it's not real prominent and it's not a, um, a biomarker, a marker that we would look for in terms of making referrals for kids. We're mostly looking at, at behavioral kinds of issues. And then the third area that we is required is some confirmation of uh, prenatal alcohol use. And so this can sometimes make things complicated if children are in foster care um, or they've been adopted. Uh, it can be difficult to collect those kinds of uh, birth histories, but it's not impossible. And most of the clinics in Canada are very good detectives and have been able to find that information out. Um, we now have many more in, uh, uh, birth families coming forward in Canada asking to have their children diagnosed so we can tell that we're building a safety net for families to feel comfortable to come forward and that they won't be judged about what's happened um, and that um, we want to make sure that they get the, the best care for their kids. So and that's unusual that's not happening in other countries right now. If your child has been diagnosed with FASD um, now what? Yeah, so um, the next steps are that um, if it's a child, 
that um, then they can start to get the kinds of support that they need perhaps in schools. So a diagnosis like this then requires um, education to legally uh, support someone based on their disability. Um, and in most provinces in Canada, FASD is considered a disability. Um, so that that's one thing that, um, that has occurred and so people start to get the kinds of supports. The assessment is also that happens at diagnosis is very functional so it gives some very clear ideas about the kinds of supports and benefits that people would would um, be more successful with so we can start to look at how we can adapt people's environments um, both at home and at school uh, perhaps in their social activities as well so that kids can be successful um, if the kids are a bit older, um, certainly then it helps to look at things like transition planning into adulthood. What does that look like? What supports do people need? Um, that, that sort of thing. Um, and then at, for adults that get diagnosed, and there is uh, growing capacity in Canada for adults to receive a diagnosis, um, then they can often um, have access to disability resources, whether that's funding um, or uh, other kinds of um, uh, supports and each province has their own kind of list so I'm kind of struggling to find the right words that would be common across all of Canada but um, certainly that they would have access to those disability supports and even um, the families can also apply for a disability tax credit FASD is considered one of the disabilities under that form as well so but the the primary thing is that we can start to adapt people's environments and expectations so that kids can be successful so that they'll have better outcomes as they get older you know, when I was living in Cambridge, and that was where I did my first postdoc, um, and I was studying more addiction, uh, and I found out that I got the position at, um, at UBC studying fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, I was telling a bunch of my colleagues what I was going to be studying, and so many people did not realize or had no awareness of what fetal alcohol syndrome was or fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, which I thought was pretty surprising. Uh, so. I guess related to that, can you tell us some of the myths around FASD? Sure. So um, just on the heels of your international experience, that is one of the myths that it's a North American issue because in North America we binge drink, whereas Europeans, for example, have a much more moderate uh, ability to manage their liquor. But in fact, um, all across the world now, people are involved in this disorder and learning about it and educating. It just so happens that Canada ha is one of the leaders in the field, and so um, we're leading the research and the service delivery side of things and so Europe now is catching up to us and learning more about the disorder in their own countries. So that's one myth. Um, another myth is that uh, people grow out of the disorder and um, we know that there are many adults that have uh, FASD and very challenging and complex uh, situations happening in their lives uh, so we know that um, it's a lifelong condition. Um, we also, many people, uh, particularly in Canada, think that this is an Indigenous issue and um, we know that there are, wherever women drink and are at um, childbearing years are at risk of having a baby with FASD um, and Indigenous communities may be at larger risk because of the trauma, um, because of the generational issues that they have with alcohol, but they have seriously been the leaders in the field in Canada. Without them we wouldn't know as much as we do about FASD. 
And um, it's not a huge leap in their minds that alcohol causes harm in their society, so alcohol would also cause harm in the developing fetus. Um, whereas in the rest of Canada, we still are under this belief system that it won't happen to us, that it doesn't happen in other populations. But one of the things we do know is that women who make over 80000 a year uh, are one of the highest risk groups in Canada, that they don't know when they're pregnant, and alcohol is a major part of our culture now. Um, and so we are certainly seeing a number of women uh, having children with FASD. One of the other groups, which is exciting that I'm on a campus, is uh, college and university women. Uh, you know, they're very stressed, they don't always know when they're pregnant, and uh, the alcohol consumption on university campuses for women is now on par with men and for most of the country, and so they're at very high risk. And then the third area of women that would be at high risk would be women with addictions issues. And what is the long-term prognosis for FASD? Like, what what should we expect if a child is diagnosed with FASD for, you know, their elementary life, high school, adulthood and beyond? So Canada has been had some diagnostic capacities from a, since about uh, 2000. So we can now see people um, as they've grown up and become older that have had an early diagnosis and maybe had some of those good supports around them. Those folks tend to have much better outcomes um, uh, because people have understood them, they've gotten the help that they needed, they haven't fallen into some of the, the, the more secondary or problematic areas like justice um, or gotten involved in, um, in, in substance use. And so we see some of those folks have gone on to post-secondary school, some of them have become parents, some of them have become um, motivational speakers in this field, um, but they uh, definitely are doing much, much better. Those that don't receive a diagnosis till much later in life or have not been well supported or understood uh, still have poor outcomes. We still see an overrepresentation of folks within the justice system. We oversee uh, a large number of folks within the um, alcohol, drug treatment kinds of programs, and sometimes as well within the mental health systems. So um, we definitely know that the earlier that they can get diagnosed, the more supports we can put around them that are appropriate, the better outcomes they have. And in your opinion, what is the best way to prevent FASD? So it's really interesting. Um, CanFASD, with our research lead in prevention, has developed a model on how to look at prevention. So there's really four levels of prevention that we can address. So often when people learn about this disorder, they start thinking about public health campaigns. So that's kind of level one, right? How do you let the general public, everybody in society, know not to drink during pregnancy? So that, that's, that's kind of level one. Then level two would be things like um, if you go see your doctor about birth control, they could have a conversation with you around alcohol and pregnancy. Or if you are pregnant, your OB uh, may have a conversation with you about the use of alcohol. And so some of the, the service provider, those brief conversations that people may need. Level three would be a much more intensive kinds of support for people that may be at seen as high risk of having a child with FASD. So starting to serve some of these higher risk populations um, and giving them more one-to-one kinds of support. 
Then when you get into level four, this is the area where we're really working with women who are at high risk of having uh, one or more children with the disorder. And so we want to work much more intensively with them on uh, getting them the help that they need. And so we can find these women through our diagnostic clinics or through various uh, different departments like child welfare um, or addictions treatment. And so getting these the, these um, uh, families the support that they need is in a, in a much more intensive long-term way because one of the things we know about that group of women is that they tend to have multiple births over time. So they're, you know, this isn't the the necessarily the college student that gets pregnant unexpectedly and has a child with FASD um, but then goes on to have other children that may not be impacted because of they you know they've stopped drinking but these are women who have some serious issues with alcohol and substances and so they they tend to have many children. Okay great Audrey can you tell us a little bit about the CAN FASD response to the truth and reconciliation call to action? Right. So um, when the uh, Truth and Reconciliation uh, report came out many years ago, now uh, CANFASD made a pledge that we would address the issues around FASD that were indicated. And so there's actually two. I'll speak to number 34 first, which talks about the number of folks with FASD within the justice system. So our framework looked at the historical aspects, um, the number of people with FASD perhaps within Indigenous communities because of the trauma and um, the um, the substance use and, and alcoholism that tends to run through some communities because of that trauma and uh, just exactly what you talked about. So um, a number of people talked in those stories um, that they brought forward to the commission about FASD, about the high numbers of their people that were involved within the criminal justice system. And so um, we really took a look at why that happened in this report, but also looking at what could we do to prevent some of that. So um, we know that uh, there's a number of ways in which we can look at um, limiting the number of people with FASD that actually get involved in the criminal justice system. So looking at some of those redirections, um, better support systems for individuals, which kind of goes back to the whole diagnostic capacity as well. Um, and But looking at the justice system itself and what does it need to be more responsive to this group of people. So certainly looking at um, education um, at all levels within the system so that RCMP officers, judges, Crown prosecutors, lawyers, um, and then once they're in the facilities, those facility folks that would understand better um, some of the issues around people with FASD. Uh, so there, there's certainly education plays a key role through many of the uh, uh, recommendations that we have. Um, we also need to do more research to know um, what actually, once they're in those systems, what are some of the better practices that we could uh, be falling on to have better outcomes for people so that they just don't go out the door and turn around and come back in. So we want to really figure out what are some of those best practices. We don't have that kind of evidence right now. We have some good ideas and there's been some uh, people trying some things, but it really hasn't been researched very well. 
So research is a big part that also needs to be played in this. Um, and, um, and then as well, we need to look at um, uh, within some of those uh, corrections facilities, they do have the capacity to do diagnosis, but currently are not. And so we need to educate them, train them how to do diagnosis so that people can at least, um, if not within the facilities when they leave, can get the supports that they need um, uh, to be more productive in society. So there, th those are just a few of, the, I think there's 11 recommendations, um, but, but that's kind of the broad strokes. Thanks for being here today, Audrey. Really appreciated it. Great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. This episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University, and made possible in part by metabolism allowing our host to turn lentils and peanut butter cups into podcast episodes. Theme music for Minding the Brain is Plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.